Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 93. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special returning guest is Glenn Goodman. He's the author of The Crypto Trader, How Anyone Can Make Money Trading Bitcoin and Other Cryptocurrencies. This podcast was recorded on the 24th of March. Hi, Glenn. Is it Glenn? It, it, it is, is Glenn. It is Glenn. Oh, Glenn. Really, how, have you, how have you been? I've been all right. I'm, well, I say that, but I might have coronavirus. Oh, really? So that's good that this is it's a good call. job we're on Skype then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I might, I might not have that. That's the, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of moral support you want from, from a friend, isn't it? Yeah. I'm glad we're doing this remotely by phone at a distance of some miles. <laughs> yeah. You can't you can't buy friendship like that. Exactly. <laughs> if only I was even further away. That's the only way this could get any better for you. Well, I've even moved away from uh, my mic. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but are you using a Huawei phone? Because that might yet yeah, have the sort of granulated molecules of, of plague virus on it anyway. Well, you say that, but I'm relying on the Chinese to, to save me. I'm sure they'll they'll kind of they'll genetically engineer some kind of cure and then uh, email it to me. Well, to be fair, I mean, I know this isn't a terribly scientific analysis, but as as, as children will will be happy to point out, he who smelt it dealt it, and on that basis, the Chinese are responsible. Indeed, exactly. I mean, they may have even made it in their little lab. Might uh, it's it's funny you say that. So one of the things I've been reading um, today, as I try and sort of desperately try and keep up with things is we can have it in the show notes in fact it's it are either you guys familiar with harvard to the big house no have you heard of that? no i haven't i i i've only just just become familiar with it basically i can send you a link and it's logistical and technical exploration into the origins of the wuhan strain of coronavirus now actually should we, should, are we are we rolling uh paul we yeah we are the, yeah the yeah intro? I'm taking so it. Make this the intro. I'm taking it from the top so we can just go straight into it okay okay so this is i'm just reading the opening paragraph This report is the product of a collaboration between a retired professional scientist with dozens of peer-reviewed publications and 30 years of experience in genomic sequencing and analysis, who worked at the Theoretical Biology Division of the Los Alamos National Laboratory and later helped design several ubiquitous bioinformatics software tools, as well as a former NSA counterterrorism analyst. Okay, so we've established the credentials, I think. Uh, These are proper people. Proper, proper scientist. It considers whether the Wuhan strain of coronavirus is the result of naturally emergent mutations against the possibility that it may be a bioengineered strain directly altered by genetic manipulation, subject to artificially guided evolutionary selection or both, most likely released into the public by accident, since China's rate of occupational accidents is about 10 times higher than America's and some 20 times more than Europe's, the only other regions with high-level virology labs. Mic drop. Do they have one of those signs up in the lab saying zero days since last? There's a zero days since last inadvertent global pandemic. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> oh, no. So, so, so beat that. Well, anyway, I've probably just got a cold, so <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, this that's is, what we were this, worrying say about. One thing, say, one, say one thing about the coronavirus. It's led to some absolute comedy gold bans. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's the only way to deal with it, isn't it? That's the only way to deal with all of this. I think it is. I think it is. True. Laugh until we drop dead. The yes. only, only, only way this is going to work. Only way to get so, through it. 
<laughs> so a couple of, I mean, I've got a couple of, I mean, you, you, this is you guys' uh, podcast, so you set the agenda, but I got a couple of uh, topics that I was interested in shoot. discussing. Yeah, which is, I will it's, shoot. It's free form, so go for it. All right. Well, uh, the two things I wanted to discuss, well, first of all, you know, I, I wrote that book, The Crypt Trader, so I'm still very interested in cryptocurrencies and trading them and so on. And so I think it's worth discussing uh, Bitcoin, particularly in the light of the unlimited quantitative easing that has been announced, uh, the infinite money printing that the Fed and probably every other central bank in the world is planning to do. Uh, Bitcoin obviously was invented for precisely the purpose of um, replacing the the infinitely money printed fiat currencies, whether or not it ever achieves that. You know, we're still yet to find out, but obviously a lot of the people, the big Bitcoin cheerleaders are getting very excited now. They think that this is their moment. Their moment has come. So, in, so in, in, sorry, 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 in the same way that, that those of us that are gold bugs feel the same about gold. Yes. Yeah. So, Indeed. So let's quite just, rightly so. Let's ask a quick, a quick question about that then. So just before all this kicked off and Bitcoin was hurtling downwards, did you feel any, any fear about it going to zero or did you think something else would pull it back up and how do you feel about it now well as you probably remember i'm a technical trader primarily i'm yeah. a, I, I follow the charts and i respect the charts so as i sort of documented on my twitter i got out of bitcoin when the chart told me that things were not looking good um and i tweeted that to my followers some of whom have been um quite grateful for that little heads up. Um, so I got out at, let me just consult my, consult my charts, uh, about eight and a half thousand. And then it fell, well, it, it pretty much halved from that point. It just dropped like a stone. And what was interesting, of course, was that it just fell into line with the stock market. Mm. It, you know, the, the big, one of the big claims for it was that it's a non-correlated asset. And I, I know from 2008 and my experiences there that ultimately there's no such thing as a non-correlated asset. Everything, you know, when people start panicking, everything just falls into line and goes down together. And of course, this time it included gold as well. In fact, I think it did in 2008 as well, before gold obviously eventually then came back and had a massive rally. Likewise, that may, I mean, it's still early days, but that may be what's happening with Bitcoin and gold this time round. They both drop like a stone as, as everybody sold any asset that they could get their hands on to turn into cash, to turn into dollars. And now that the dust has settled a little bit, gold has obviously risen quite significantly. And so has Bitcoin. It's come back up, not quite to where it started uh, dropping like a stone, but it's, it's getting there. Have you bought back yet? I haven't. No, no. So I'm. You, I'm not convinced yet. You're not convinced. So what are you? What are you looking for? Because it's made. It's made well, a short-term I'm, bottom. It has. And oh, actually, sorry, I should have mentioned I did buy that short-term bottom um, because I like the pattern. But then I sold again, sort of a little bit lower than where we are now. So I made a decent profit on that. But I saw it as a short-term trade because I'm not a bottom fisher. Mm. I'm a. I'm a longer-term trader. I try to go for the big trends, and particularly when it comes to stocks and shares, in, I, I'm more or less an investor, really, when when push comes to shove, because the trends that I like to follow last for years, usually, you know, I like to hold on to shares for years and years if they're if they're heading in the right direction, that suits me just fine. Um, likewise, 
you know, if you look at the daily chart of Bitcoin, it still looks pretty horrible. And, it's, you know, it's just been heading downward since the beginning of 2018, ultimately. And even though since the be uh, beginning of 2018, there have been massive rallies along the way from the from April 2019 until June 2019, Bitcoin more than quadrupled in price. So that, and that was just a bear market rally. So, that, you know, that's how crazy Bitcoin is. So the fact that it's come back quite heavily from the low that it made a few days ago and is already up by, what, about a third, like 30 percent or something, that's, that's really not very much in the grand scheme of things for Bitcoin. And so as far as I'm concerned, it's still very much in a bear market, which gives me pause uh, though if it rises much further, and certainly if it rises above the point where it started dropping like a stone and where the stock market was dropping like a stone, if it manages to rise above that point, and we're only talking about $1,000 or so from where we are now, then I will be strongly considering buying it, yeah. I mean, if it doesn't rally in this environment, you've got to say there's going to be a problem. Well, there may well be a problem. You know, I'm not I'm not one of these Bitcoin cheerleaders. No, I'm not saying you I are. Am a I'm not saying you are. But it's, no, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but it would be, like you said at the, at the top, it, this is, this is the, the ideal time for Bitcoin to shine. And, um, and it's, it's held up. I mean, look, let's face it, it collapsed to about $4,000. It's had a decent, a decent rebound. So uh, yeah. I, 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 I agree with you. I don't think it necessarily, you'll buy it when it looks strong. You're not going to just shut your eyes and buy it just because it's Bitcoin. You're going to buy it because it, it looks like it's going up. Um, but it, but yeah, I mean, you know, look, the stock market rally is, um, you know, as we speak today, there's a little bit of a rally. I mean, there is, you know, on several days recently, a little bit of a stock market rally, and it doesn't really mean very much within the grand scheme of this massive drop. Nobody knows exactly where the bottom will be. But what I do know is that if we have another massive drop on the stock market, I'm afraid Bitcoin will probably be dragged down with it again. And that's yeah. the main thing that gives me pause. It, it could well not have hit its bottom yet. I'd like to think it has because rather conveniently, uh, the bottom that it hit a few days ago was uh, a retest of the initial breakout in 2019. So it's kind of like, you know, it didn't get lower than it had done before. It didn't make a lower low. Uh, it, it stopped short of that. And, you know, from a technical perspective, that's that's usually a very good sign. So, yeah, as you can see, I'm torn. I'm torn yeah. here. I think what's interesting about all of this is whilst we ponder the technicals, People like Tim who look at the fundamentals um, of their particular asset classes are either going to jump in and buy more gold because they see the environment moving towards, you know, their, their kind of feared outcome for what the central banks were going to do and predictably do, um, or, or or just not not sell any and uh, and therefore the market will, will go back up. Would you say? Would you say that's fair, Tim? That's that's a very fair reflection of what we've been doing. So as I think we've probably discussed on previous calls, what we've been doing is rather than selling, because we, we don't have, we, we're not coming into this uh, with client accounts with massive allocations to equity. But what we have been doing is sort of de-risking, what we think is de-risking sensibly by rotating out of industrial cyclical uh, positions in stocks and into precious metals miners uh, with little or no debt. Um, but you're absolutely right in that for us, this is it, effectively more or less proof positive or sort of culmination of a thesis. So the way that I think the way I can best describe that is 
I think many of us, and I'm not, not being blasé or glib about this, but many of us felt that something was was badly wrong and has been badly wrong for some considerable time. And we were coming into 2020 with the full realisation that the balloon was massively overinflated. What we didn't know until just now was what was the nature, precise nature of the pin that was going to burst the bubble. And we now know that it wasn't a financial sector thing per se. It was a uh, a new virus, a, a, a new virus as yet un- incurable um, that is probably not as dangerous as first thought, but it's highly virulent, highly contagious, highly infectious. And so uh, what we've, so effectively, if I, 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 you talk about asset classes, the asset classes that we are currently allocated to are r- very, very roughly a third value stocks however you want to describe those, and they're unconstrained and around the world, though we have a particular enthusiasm for the Japanese market, which I notice has been a particularly strong performer today. I I noticed Um, that bounce before everything else. That was bouncing yesterday before the announcement, and I thought that was really uh, interesting. And we can can talk a bit more about that if people aren't bored rigid by the topic of Japanese stocks. But uh, so <laughs> well, they're on the wrong bloody podcast if they are. I can already hear sort of people, people's, people's jaws dropping or bodies just hitting the floor uh, in, unconsciously. Um, but so, so it's, <laughs> you're, you're immune to it now. You're immune to the no, Japanese story. Japanese stocks are coming back <laughs> any moment now. <laughs> It's 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 coming back. It's coming back. Um, so a third stocks, third value stocks, a third trend following funds, systematic trend followers, uh, and then a third real assets brackets gold uh, brackets. So both in bullion form and in miners. And for us, not yet crypto, but that that may yet change. Um, and so that that feels to us to be broadly about right, given the extraordinary nature of what's occurring. So very quickly, I'll give you the, the, the take on Japan, and then we can sort of broaden it out to all the other things that people want to talk about. So here, here is a statement or a suggestion about Japan versus, say, the US. Okay? So Japanese companies have been hoarding cash and dealing with a deflationary depression in their own market now for 25 years. As a result, they now have the healthiest balance sheets in the world. After Abe came along, they've also been become increasingly profitable and they've developed a newfound respect for shareholder return, shareholder value, divid- higher dividend payments and buybacks. So that's Japan. One of the funds we invest in, and no names, but people will be able to work it out. It's a Pan-Asian fund. It now yields f- over 5%, an all-time record, and it's predominantly invested in Japan. Some of the PEs of its underlying companies are three or four times at the moment, with yields approaching nearly 20%. Japan works. And you may or may not be interested to learn, I mean, this may or may not be an outlier, Japan has been less badly affected than just about any other country in uh, in Asia by the coronavirus. I'm I'm not I'm not making the story about coronavirus. I'm just saying that's Japan, okay. And then the flip side of this story is okay. So let's have a look at the US, for example. US companies are coming into this mess, having in many cases aggressively bought back their shares at, you know, indiscriminately, taken on debt to do so. So US Inc. is entering this this storm with more debt than it's ever had just at a time when that probably is a life-threatening condition. Do I rather want to own Japan in this environment or do I want to own US? It's not really a tough decision to make, is it? Mic drop, mic drop two. <laughs> that is a very good point. Um, 
Shall I tell you what I, how I handled this one? Yes. And uh, yes, please. And then we can discuss both mine and Tim's strategies. Well, obviously, I'm I don't have a fund as such. I I do my own trading. You may remember my my story was I was a, an ITV news correspondent. We've all we've all we've all been there, Glenn. We've all been there. <laughs> and we, I, uh, I and I was trading, you know, as a hobby for years and years, and then it became more than a hobby, and then it, uh, I was earning more trading than I was from my job, and in 2012 I quit and said, right, I'm going to trade full time, and effectively, um, I've been trading full time and making nearly all my income from trading, supporting my family ever since. So that's eight years I've been sitting here. So this self isolation thing is nothing new to me. My my, my life is the same frankly, as it was, as it was a few weeks ago. Um, now, as regards how I handled this crisis, and as I say, I only had my own money to worry about. Um, what's interesting, actually, you mentioned that you invest in trend following funds. And obviously, I follow charts a lot. I've been a trend follower primarily for a long time now. And the first thing that really struck me was from looking at the charts of coronavirus growth, particularly though outside China. I was looking at the the log chart of growth of cases outside China. About two months ago, I first started paying serious attention to it. I wasn't too bothered about the China figures. They were way ahead and I knew that they would be lying about them anyway. So I wasn't too fussed about taking them seriously. But it was the cases outside China, particularly in places like South Korea and the way that they were increasing exponentially. Um, and, you know, I, I'm so used to seeing those kind of charts and what they mean that it just seemed a no-brainer to me at that point. And I mean, there was a, I went on a, a, another podcast a couple of months ago, and there's audio of me basically shouting into the microphone going, why hasn't the stock market crashed? It makes no sense. It should have crashed by now. Um, I say two months ago. That wasn't two months ago. It was about a month and a half ago. And I, I just didn't understand it because the, the trend – in the actual growth of the virus outside China was so obvious to me by that point that the market should have been crashing. But then, of course, I knew from my experience that markets behave irrationally probably most of the time anyway. So, But we I, didn't, I we didn't know I had... that much about it, though, unless you knew more about it. Because from what we were... I was listening back to some of our podcasts where we were discussing it. And for the yeah. information that we got at that time, it was, it was like bad flu. And if you look at the numbers of people who die from normal flu, it's a hell of a lot. So we, we were just trying to work out, yeah, okay, this is bad, but how bad is it really? And that's partly because we weren't given the full picture about what the actual flu virus was doing to people. And, you know, this, this, I think this is, sorry to interrupt, but this is, this, I think gets to the heart of the, the issue for the last, certainly for the last, well, since basically since the start of the year, that the West has been behaving as if the stuff coming out of China, the stuff that the Chinese were telling us, is truthful. And it just turns out that it hasn't. So you may find, I mean, I was a sort of Twitter, a member of the Twitterati. You know, I, I kind of, you know, keep a, a close eye on the thing. And there's a, there's a hashtag now, hashtag China lied, people died. But that to me gets the heart of it. Whether or not this was an accidental or deliberate release of a genetically engineered bioweapon, or it was simple, or it was, it was the, you know, a mutation. Uh, uh, you know, an infection that came across from you know from a wet market to humans, and then quickly crossed the species divide. It's kind of academic. It doesn't. I mean, clearly, it matters in terms of solving the thing, in terms of getting a vaccine, if that's possible. But 
to, to accept, it doesn't matter whether it was accidental or deliberate. The damage is is being done, um, but it, it's the specific fact. So, I mean, this is this is where the sort of the financial market aspect and the investment market aspect becomes really interesting to me. Which is, you know, for for several years now, people have been banging on about this thing called ESG, environmental social governance, and all of the biggest fund players. If, if you haven't heard, by the way, I've just I just 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 got to the top of my soapbox just because it makes a little sound, <laughs> and this is the sound it makes when I when I finally reach the summit of my soapbox. Um, that um, the biggest fund management groups have have basically spent all of their time virtue signalling about you know their their commitment to you know climate change and greening and all the rest of it, and quietly behind the scenes they've also been huge investors in China. I would now find, given what's happened and given what is happening and the economic and human cost of this disaster, I would defy any fund company on earth to say, well, if you've got a China fund, you do not have an ESG policy because they are completely compatible. You are supporting a murderous regime which has been welding people into into their own houses, which has lied about a, what's now become a global pandemic, which is going to kill tens of thousands of people before it's finished and has destroyed trillions of dollars of wealth. I, I Square that with your effing ESG policy and stay, stay fashionable. Mike, Mike drop three. <laughs> yes, I completely agree with that assessment and with your stance on China in general. Um, I mean, the thing was, at, at that point in time, a month and a half ago, as you say, we had very little data about how many people, you know, what proportion of people this was really going but to. So, so, so everyone's, everyone's behaviour was, was reflecting the, the assumption that everything coming out of Wuhan was true. Yeah, I mean, I was very sceptical about what was coming out of Wuhan, which is why I was focusing so much on the figures, the number of cases outside China. Even though it was tiny at the time, there was already a clear trend and it was growing very, very, very fast. And so basically I put together... You know, the bits of information I had, one bit of information is what you mentioned earlier, which is that uh, we already had a massive bubble, effectively, particularly in America, uh, over-debtedness, share buybacks, et cetera, et cetera. So already everything had been looking very frothy for quite a while. On top of that, even if it was only a case of China's economy being uh, severely dented, which it was clearly going to be, because even back a month and a half ago, they they had a lockdown and all the rest of it, and manufacturing had closed down and exports had closed down. So clearly there was going to be a massive economic impact even that far back. And that's why I couldn't understand why markets weren't taking that on board. But because I'm a trend follower, I couldn't just go short mm. because I, I don't believe in doing that because the markets could remain irrational longer than I could stay solvent, blah, blah, blah. So uh, instead, I bought put options on the S&P 500 uh, as an insurance policy so that if the market started going down, then they would effectively cancel out any losses that I got on my shares because most of my money is in stocks and shares and a certain amount in the commodities markets and currencies, but main, mainly stocks and shares. So I had to hedge myself, hedge my bets there. So I took out, the, I bought the put options uh, so that as the market would start going down, I would start making lots of money on those. I also got ready uh you know, I sort of had a plan in my head. I was going to buy a lot of treasury bonds, uh, which I did do as soon as the market started falling. And treasury bonds, of course, went through the roof for a while until they started being even dragged down by the generalized stock market effect, crash effect as well, uh, at which point I sold them sort of near their peak. So all in all, I came out of this pretty well, not like, you know, 
not it wasn't like 2008 where i made lots of money shorting the market this was very different i was just trying to stay safe more than anything else so i haven't made a fortune or anything but i have come out of this um you know slightly up on where i was before and that was because of those measures that i took and also i was slowly selling my shares right from the top but not immediately i didn't sell them all as soon as the market started crashing i did it sort of progressively and then closing my put options as well sort of progressively as i went along and so where i am currently is more or less flat more or less just out of interest glenn what 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 how long dated were the options so how how much time did you allow yourself for those positions to go into the money this is so annoying i bought them for i bought the first load in january and i just bought a one month expiry they expired yeah, on yeah. i think it was the oh, 20th of no. february and and it was literally the day before oh, there yeah. was a big decline in the stock market it was so annoying but you know as soon as they expired i was i immediately took out new ones mm-hmm. so i did lose money on that first tranche which was frustrating but it was a i mean you know it's part of the game it was a relatively small amount of money it was it was nothing really um the the cost of the options was so low back then as well because mm-hmm. even in january the cost of these options like was cheap because hardly anybody was interested in buying them which yeah. is kind of surprising considering we all knew about coronavirus but again the irrationality of the markets i suppose my suspicion is and this is where the kind of behavioral uh finances are, uh, have have an edge over let's say the the, the well certainly the, the plain traditional economists that if you look at how if you look at the shape of let's say a full-blown bear market um it, you know throughout history you have these savage well you have the savage sell-offs then you have equally savage you know sharp rallies but then those rallies get progressively weaker and then they they become you know the the lows get tested and then ultimately break and i i just wonder whether even now at this stage where where we are in the progression of this story that there's still a bit too much hope out there and so all i was going to suggest is whether the market is gold bitcoin stocks bonds currencies whatever but, but particularly in the stock market because that's where most people probably most most individuals have the most of their, the, the the bulk of their money invested you know, ideally for the long run in, a, say, a pension scheme or something. But what's going to take, what's going to be really uh, shocking is if, you know, w- w- what I think is going to be most detrimental to everybody's psychic health is going to be the sharp bounces that make everyone go, phew, that was bad. And then they just get taken, this get taken lower and lower progressively over time. So what is going to kill people is going to be, is going to be buying prematurely into these hope rallies. There is a guy, I'm trying to remember his name, but there was a, a guy who I think was in the American Air Force and he was shot down over Vietnam in the war. And so he was he was incarcerated by the North Vietnamese. And he 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 lived to tell the tale. And he was like his whole body was shattered and all the rest of it, and he was tortured and whatnot. But he was saying the P- <laughs> so this, is, this is a happy story then. It's a very happy story. It's a very happy story. <laughs> so something you can tell tell the tell the grandkids around that around yeah. that family hearth. But basically the point he was making was the people who didn't make it out of that experience, his, his fellow prisoners, were the people who said, oh, it's okay, we'll be out by Christmas or we'll be out by Easter. And he, and he said that it was that clutching at hope and then having it continually just just hammered back because they weren't there. They, they, they were all still in prison in a, you know, in a Saigon jail or whatever. He said it was the hope that killed everybody. The people who just said, well, we'll just have to get through this regardless and didn't attach a time frame to you know, events happening and, and a recovery. Those are the people that made it. So I'm just saying there, there can be a terrible danger in clinging, 
in clinging over much to hope over simply being a bit more pragmatic and realistic about the the true nature of things. Yeah, I to- I totally agree with you. It's it's attrition that kills investors' hope. Exactly. All capitulation. Yeah. The I mean, the really the really tricky thing is is that nearly every bear market works in the way that you've just described and lasts months and usually years. And so that's that's sort of what kills them eventually is all these bear market rallies. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we had a rally of, say, 20% mm. in the stock markets. That would have, in, in this environment, that would be sort of semi-normal. Um, and it's something I would try and buy into because I just wouldn't be able to resist the temptation. And yet, at the same time, I'd kind of be aware that it was a short-term thing and I I may well get the timing wrong. I'm, I think I'll find it very hard to resist the temptation of buying into something that might rise 20% though. But anyway, the, the point is that that may well just end up being a bear market rally and then it shoots down another 30% or more, uh, particularly in this kind of possible global depression type environment. But what really terrifies me is the possibility. Oh, sorry. Uh, bless you. Bless your coronavirus. Uh, what really terrifies me is the possibility of a 1987 type event. But what if this is one of those situations where it plummets uh, 30%, maybe even 50% in this case, which would be a, you know twice as much as 1987 almost, and then just rises and rises and rises and rises for two years until we're back to where we were at the start. What if that happens and I miss it because I was holding out for a much longer bear market or in the expectation of a much longer bear market. That's, this, is, this is what keeps me up at night, is that, that fear, I think. Yeah, but even if that did happen and you missed the, the low, you, you missed the short, you could still buy into it. If, that, if the market's going to recover all the way, you know, that what we're talking about here is there's plenty of volatility. So either way, the markets are going to swing around. Um, if they move back into two to three hundred point for the Dow, say say ranges, then okay, that's the worst case scenario as a trader um, because there's not much volatility there. But if if there's a crash and you miss it, the, there's going to be still plenty of volatility. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And there's always other stuff moving. I mean, there'll be Bitcoin moving. I think the big moves that we're set to see now has got to be in the currencies because currencies have been phenomenally quiet, like really unusual. I mean, they're starting to they're starting to move a bit now, but historically, I've been trying to buy into the dollar because of its yeah I, uh, yeah. I mean, the the dollar has strengthened dramatically just in what in the last week or so. Yeah, and I, I I sort of I think I buy that story in my head. There's a very strong story here for the whole world getting terrified and moving into dollars, and and currently moving out of pounds in quite a big way as well. And I've been trying to get in on that, but annoyingly, I left it a bit too late. And and every time I try and get in, I sort of get stopped out. Mm. I mean, that's part of my strategy. Being a being the kind of because I have to worry about my family and my own money. I'm quite a cautious trader in in many ways, which is why it's a good way I was to be. so determined. Well, yeah, you have to be when it's when when it's your own money. It's it's my family's savings. It's our life savings. I've got to be careful, and that's why I made sure that I was getting out near the top, and have done at times like this in the past as well. Because I I can't take stupid chances. I I can't take big chances. So um, I've got too much of my own money at stake. So 
Uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, the dollar. That's right. And so um, dollars and pounds, every time I try and get into the market, I, I can't allow myself to ever to have a big loss. That's kind of number one rule for, for trend following traders, cut your losses. So I keep getting stopped out mm. of these long dollar trades and short pound trades. But I th- I've got to get back into it somehow, particularly if the pound is going to continue to tank. Because if it does, then all of us with most of our money in pounds are, are losing money all of the while that that's going on. Could you possibly say at this point that we, um, I mean, we're talking here, or from what I gathered from your and Tim's tone, that that the market could could have another leg down. Of course, that's possible. But in terms of yeah. sent, in terms of sentiment, how much more negative do you think we could be? I mean, this is this is probably this is definitely a peak in sentiment on the bearish side. Prior, you know, pre pre the stimulus that I've seen in a long while. I don't know. I remember the. Um, 9-11 attacks, for example, and every 15 minutes of the first meeting that you'd ever have would always talk about that, and then you'd move on um, to what you actually wanted to talk about. And it was such a massive event that it would, it would do that. And that, this is what this does. Everyone talks about it for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and then discusses what they really want to talk about. Um, so it feels very similar in that regard. Uh, but could it, could it become even worse? So that, that's the question. Have, have we got... Have we got something that in, say, a month's time we're going to recover from and things are going to recover much faster and the, and the media are just going to keep egging this on? Um, or is it something that we've completely uh, failed to see how much of a downside it's going to cause and all the ripples and the demand that has been taken away won't come back for a long time? So which, which one of those is the, is the correct scenario? I think we'll probably decide how the market trades. Well, I think the thing with uh, the, the problem we have at the moment is that, uh, as I as I mentioned in a tweet that Tim replied to the other day, uh, the FTSE 100 has fallen back to a, a level that it was at in 1997, for heaven's sake, which uh, is actually, I mean, that's a topic that we should get onto a bit later, I think. But um, I, I would like to talk about how the all the bullishness from every investment advisor under the sun about how everybody should buy FTSE tracker funds is kind of looking a bit silly now, considering that the FTSE is back to where it was in 1997. And even the total return for the FTSE is back to where it was 13 years ago. It's the same story for the European markets, apart from Germany, apart from the DAX, but most other places are down to sort of 1997 type levels as well. The outlier, of course, is America. And this is where the answer to your question gets tricky, because America is only, I'm looking at the uh, S&P 500 right now, it's back to where it was in March 2017. And if you look at it on a weekly or a monthly chart, this still looks like a blip in the stock market. And considering that the world is is falling to pieces it it actually seems underdone on that chart if yes. anything on every other chart in the world like the FTSE and the Japanese and the uh, well not so much the Chinese but most stock markets are looking like they've priced in near apocalypse whereas the US stock market because it risen so enormously much in recent years 
it's only it's only eaten up three years worth of gains, yes. which is nothing. It's back to where it was when Donald Trump was elected. So, yeah, personally, I think the stock market could get a lot worse. And frankly, if the US market drops again very heavily, which it could do, it's going to drag down the FTSE and everything else anyway, isn't it? Because it always does. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no... There's, it'd be very unlikely for the American markets to fall and the FTSE to go up. I can't see that happening. They're all still interrelated and correlated. So um, that, that would be very unusual. So, so, but from a sentiment point of view, which taking, taking that aside, and I totally agree, if you, look, if you actually look at the long-term chart, just to reiterate what you're saying, it still looks like it's in a, in a longer-term upward trend. It could easily yeah. you know, look, look like a pullback, which is, which is amazing considering it's lost 10,000 points. But, um, but sentiment-wise, how are you reading it? How how do you feel the sentiment is? Well, I guess like all of us, it feels like the whole world is more terrified than we've ever seen in our lifetimes. Mm. You know, it's it's almost like kind of Second World War levels of fear. So from that point of view, you could say, well, surely we must have reached the bottom by now then. I mean, looking at the actual volumes on the stock market, you know how when you get a massive... Um, drop even if it's just a kind of turns out to be a false alarm like the one in late 2018 or the one in 2016 or the one in 2011 whenever you get one of those big corrections you tend to get one last final blow off day where you get massive volume a massive fall in price and then quite often on the same day a massive recovery in price yes and that often signals the kind of that that rings the bell for the beginning of the recovery and i haven't seen that so far in these markets yeah we've had massive volumes on the way down but there hasn't been that one big blow off day and that worries me somewhat. I, I would need to see that before I could feel, okay, we're going to have a recovery, whether it's temporary or not, who knows, but at least we know that the market's back on the way up. I mean, price is, kind, as we speak, price is slightly on the way up, but I don't know. Like I say, we haven't seen that big final volume day. What do you two think? I, well, I think I'm, I'm entirely on the same same page, which is I think you know, the 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 final capitulation or the next big capitulation. We still we we are still we haven't experienced it yet. Yeah. But how much more scared can people get though? Like like Paul said. Um, I mean, I think part of this we're going to be driven by news flow, and although I'm hearing all this anecdotal stuff about people laying off staff, you know, you haven't seen some a appa- uh, unless I've missed a trick. We haven't seen appalling GDP prints yet. We haven't seen appalling jobless prints yet. And when people start to get a gauge on just how economically disruptive it's been, is, and probably will be for some considerable time, I think it, it comes back to that point about attrition. So we've had we've had a lot a succession of sort of hammer blow bad days, news flow wise, and then there's been some good stuff, some good days, and today feels like a good day, but you know. I I do not. Uh, let me see if I can try and find the quote because it's a it is a, a corker and it's from um, Stephen Wilkinson who we've had on the show a few times and he's um, been one of our more um, well one of our probably our more, more popular um, guests over the the last couple of years. Um, I'm going to see if I can just find this because it's it, it, it the the quote is so stark is so stark. Um, here we go. So this was he he tweeted. Um, a link to a piece by a, a, a real estate manager in the States, Tom Barak, 
and it's an essay he'd done about you know how to get us through this crisis and you know the kind of intervention that's required and he just said <clears throat> please read this i never thought i would read the sentence quote the unfortunate but necessary cessation of general commerce nationwide unquote in my lifetime so let's just get a, an assessment of what's going on at the moment the entire world economy has been thrown in a freezer that i don't know what the the total size is but that is going to take a chunk out of GDP, and that is going to be not billions, but trillions of, let's say, wealth, capital, debt, all of these things. And a lot of that stuff is going to go to money heaven, and it's never coming back. Yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at it. Um, I think another way of looking at it is that um, that this is uh, a full kind of, you know, a big pause in the world economy, which is a massive thing, of course, and you can't ever underplay that. But it also backs up potentially pent-up demand. I think as soon as everything comes back to normal, whenever that might be, and that's still a big if, you know, there's so many big ifs around, um, I th- people are going to be spending money and, and seeing people and travelling more than they ever have. Because they've not yeah, been able to do it. a lot of holidays, aren't they? Yeah, I think... A lot of people going on holiday, like they, everybody, pretty they're much. Just, they're just going to go, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, everything that's stopped, I think they're just going to start spending money on because they're being held back from doing it. I think people will find it... I don't dispute that, you know, this is only a temporary pause, but the temporary pause has already given rise to the most extraordinary stimulus measures ever in history. Yeah. And we're probably only going to get more of them. And so if effectively, it's like the law of unintended consequences is going to kick in. Um, this is from a, an essay by Theodore Del Rimple, who is, who is just superb on so many respects. So and I'll just quote very, very briefly from it. Yet in spite of the enormous weight of the state, we find, according to the latest headlines, that face masks are lacking for health staff in publicly run facilities. This is not necessarily anyone's fault because the crisis was not foreseen. But it makes you wonder how much of a country's GDP the state must absorb before there are enough face masks. South Korea is at the moment being held up as exemplary in the way it tackled the crisis, certainly by comparison with European countries. Yet the state's share of its GDP at about 16% is less than a third of France's. In other words, an inflated state might not be a strong or efficient state, just as a leg swollen by edema is not strong or efficient, merely because it's increased in size, rather the reverse. So the, the, I entirely accept the argument that this is a short-term pause, hopefully, and a short-term lockdown. But the measures already introduced, you know, it's like the old phrase goes, nothing, nothing lasts longer than a temporary, temporary emergency government measure. But what you know? happens when, when it all starts to come back and you've got all this stimulus in the system as well? That's, well, that's, well, that's a really good, that's a, okay, sure, that's a really good question. And maybe the answer to that question is stagflation. Because yeah. some people will have lost their jobs. And you're, so it's like, I mean, it is absurd to think that the, the policy response, the appropriate policy response to a pandemic is to cut interest rates when they're already at zero. That is just nonsense on stilts. Mm, and, you know, I, I accept I, the fiscal I, thing. I, and I accept the need to, you know, orderly markets and all that jazz. But, you know, there comes a point at which have, there has to be some, some thought given to the poor population of effing savers out there who've seen their wealth basically destroyed and their prospects for wealth destroyed. Uh, in a big asset rally that's lasted now off and on for basically the last 40 years or so with some big, you know, inter, in, you know intervening periods. But, you know, I just find it astonishing that everyone's focused on, you know, I mean, we, it is our job to focus on this stuff for sure, but that everyone's focused on, well, the market's only given up X or given up Y. 
a lot of the wealth that the market represented before 2020 was never real wealth. It was completely illusory capital. So in this- other words, the, the market valuations in December 2019 did not exist for everybody. They existed for the tiny handful of people who were bright enough or lucky enough to get the hell out of Dodge. And, and for everybody else, it's like, well, I wish I'd taken my money out, but you couldn't. You couldn't then and you can't now. So it's like, you know, that's, that's, the, the prices are set on the margin. And the idea that we, we and I, I'm, I'm, I, know, I, I may be wrong. I'm not claiming to be you know, oracular here, but it seems to me that we are not, go, we're not repeat not going back to the sort of pre-2020 financial market paradigm um, because if nothing else, government is going to have its snout in the trough before anybody else. Well, I mean, we, sorry, I was just going to say that uh, we, did, we didn't think we'd go back to the same paradigm after 2008, and yet somehow we did. We just went back to borrowing more and more, uh, turning on the monetary taps more and more with more QE, and yet somehow the hyperinflation that many of us expected, I kind of expected, oh, I wasn't sure we'd get hyperinflation, but... It didn't seem like a zero probability, though. It seemed like above zero. Yeah, it did seem that. like it was probable, and yet, you know, it never, it never kind of transpired. And just one last point before Paul chips in, which is um, a, a tweet that I read today that relates to what you were saying about how they decide to reduce interest rates for no apparent reason whatsoever. Uh, it says... Uh, Somebody tweeted, the one thing we've learned from this crisis is that if the Martians invaded Earth, our first response would be to lower interest rates. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's a very good point. Um, I think there's a difference between the 2008 crisis where they lowered interest rates to, to save the banks, whereas you're trying to lower interest rates now to save, you know, restaurants, bars, normal businesses that that haven't gamed any system whatsoever. They're just they're out there with risk and basically by no fault of their own, they're having to, to shut up shop. So I see a big difference between sh- you know, reducing interest rates and trying to help Main Street and, and helping out banks who were over-levered and should have known better and so should the government. So there's, there's two different things there. And I think one of the big mistakes that I made in 2008 till today was differentiating between what should happen and what will happen. Now, mm. what should happen is, yeah, the government, sorry, interest rates shouldn't be kept low and you shouldn't be sticking all this stimulus to save banks. You should have some to save, you know, the restaurants, et cetera, as I've just mentioned. But you shouldn't necessarily do that. But by virtue of the fact that they are doing that, you, you've got, we've got to look at the consequences. The consequences are pretty much in line with everything that you've been saying, Tim, that should happen, which is that, the, and and also you know Glenn's interest in in cryptocurrencies, that those assets could well take off in a way that they would be very surprised by, but you guys wouldn't because that's what you're you're kind of expecting them to do. But if if that's what's going to happen, it'd be very unlikely for the stock market not to follow suit. Um, but it could be in an in an, an environment where inflation is is very high, much higher than they think, uh, or you know. And it, it could it could I come think, up, it I think, could come up, I, it could come up upon us much quicker than we we expect because I I don't know if you I don't know, sure. I, I mean, don't know if you've noticed just just before just before we got in, I don't know if you've noticed but prices of things have gone up you know they have gone up and they've gone up in a in a deflationary supposed deflationary environment but certain things you might not be able to mm. get hold of if you can't get hold of stuff that you want uh, excuse me that's inflationary right so we've got mm. a demand mm. shock but we also might have an inflationary shock and that could be why commodities might see a big move up but then 
stocks might as well. So it's it's really interesting. I mean, I, I I'm not um, I'm not arguing for anything other than. Um, trying to work out where we really are. And I don't want to look back and, mm-hmm. and think, oh, wow, that was a pinnacle of negative sentiment. We had commodities rising. We had risk-on assets rising. And yet we just ignored the, the possibility of buying the stock market because we thought there was another 10 20% on the downside. Um, at the moment, as it stands, things are moving up. So mm-hmm. I can only say it looks very tentatively okay to, to go in and buy. Now, how long that will last, it may be just to the end of this podcast for all I know. Mm. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but but at the moment, it's looking it's looking okay. Well, I don't want to say anything, Paul, but there's a giant flying saucer that's just landed in our back <laughs> garden. So. <laughs> but so we'll go into negative interest rates then, I guess. Well, yeah, flying right, saucer's landed. Well, this is the problem. I mean, you know, I, this is the other thing I've been thinking through. I don't know what you guys think, but if if um, the way this could go is, yeah, neg- if if interest rates go negative, it'd be like, well, one of the reasons um, why things a bit, well, obviously people have been panicking a little bit. So a few things I was thinking about, what do people panic about? They panic about be, be, being able to buy food. Well, we know in the 2008 crisis, they panicked about being able to get hold of cash. They haven't done that at the moment because you're able to pay by card. But if if they started to say, well, this isn't working, interest rates have got to go negative, you know, what would people start to worry about? I mean, you could feasibly have people trying to withdraw money you know, actual mm. hard cash, and then what would they do? So, you know, I think it's very important that they don't put interest rate neg- interest rates negative just for that reason alone, because A, it's not going to make any difference anyway, and B, it could have that unintended consequence of, um, of making people want to get hold of cash. Well, I mean, that's a whole other massive discussion that perhaps we should have at another time, actually, because th- that's a great interest of mine, Is of course, is central bank digital currencies, mm. as the central banks are now taking over from the private cryptocurrency companies at, in being at the vanguard of developments in, in how digital currency will work in the future. And I have a strong suspicion, though, you know, it's all still very much in the air at the moment, but I have a strong suspicion that things like Bitcoin may be eclipsed by, say, the Chinese government's own central bank digital currency, or indeed, possibly one of the other ones that are in development. I mean, the Swedish uh, central bank are busy with theirs. They're already in a testing phase. The Chinese really? are already in a testing phase as well. What are the Chinese going to call any cryptos? Is it going to be called Corona? <laughs> that would be apt. I hope they do. But it's, I mean, but there is so, everything's going to change. And that's why I think we should talk about this at a later point, because it's 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 a massive topic and it will involve the Chinese government, once theirs is fully developed, it will allow them to control all the minutiae of spending yes. and money movement. They'll be able to Perfect. track everything that happens absolutely and they will have incredibly uh, clever monetary tools at their disposal that humanity has never seen before that arise from um, being able to control a digital currency as it moves, not just at the beginning. You don't just issue it and then off it goes. You program it. It's programmable and you can change the programming as it moves along, as it moves through the system. And so you can do very, very clever things with monetary policy and negative interest rates would be just the beginning of that. Um, I mean, they're already 
quite close to getting rid of cash altogether in China anyway, because so many people use Alipay and the other um, the other sort of contactless technologies that they use um, to a far greater extent than they do in Europe or America. And so they were already quite a, quite far down that road. It won't take much more, just the introduction of the digital currency to kind of allow them to say, right, we're pretty much outlawing currency now. I mean, you know, notes and coins now. Yeah. We don't need them anymore. And then they could have negative interest rates as negative as they like, and nobody would be able to do a thing about it, particularly with the capital controls that they have over there, obviously, as well. Um, that's the dystopia. And it's coming to a China near you very, very shortly. The only question remains, will they be able to export that model to the rest of the world? And that that is the huge question that I don't think we have time to discuss here today. But it's, uh, you know, it, people have been talking for decades about the, the death of the dollar and, you know, when will the dollar be overtaken as the world's global reserve currency? This is probably the biggest threat that the dollar has ever seen. Um and and it may lose. But on, on on that on that topic though, I'd also say, and it's one reason why again I think it's premature to assume that things can revert to anything remotely like what we've been used to for the last few decades. I think the China story has completely changed now. I can tell you, put it this way: it, let put take off the table the fact that I'm let's say trying to allocate client capital and and my own capital and everything on on the most objective rational basis. So let's let's take away the role of the money manager and just look at it as a as a consumer. What's my, what is my, assume I'm a typical consumer, what is my appetite for buying anything from China ever again? I can tell you it's going to be zero, and I suspect it's going to be zero for lots and lots of people. So the idea that businesses that have, that have set up over there, set up supply lines, set up partnerships, set up JVs, we, we discussed this in previous, I know we've discussed this in previous ones. I personally think, and more to the point hope, which takes us back to your point, Paul, about distinction between what, what should happen and what will happen, personally think and hope that uh, China is now going to face the mother of all commercial backlashes against the rest of the world, uh, and rightly so. And if this makes every... So effectively, what the reason why I think that it's just too premature to think about a reversion to, you know, quote, normality, unquote, is that I think along with, along with say, whatever happens in relation to relations with China, you're potentially looking at a, an, in, a, an entire reversal of the entire globalization process. Yeah, that's taken place I over the last 20, 30 years. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, th I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, look. I, well, it, I just well, think, well, well, I, can only I can only speak for myself. Of course, but yeah. What I'm saying is, yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I hear, I hear I, what you're saying. I'm looking at this, trying to rationally, and it's not, it's not a racist point. No, no, no. No, no, I have no, no, I have no trouble with the, the people of China. I have an, a massive effing problem with the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, So the reason yeah, I, yeah. I find this a really intriguing and attractive prospect and I'd be happy to try and affect it, uh, is that, um, you know, if it were possible to try and affect peaceful, bloodless regime change in China, what a thing to shoot for. Because then you're looking at transforming, you know, 1.3 billion people who are currently slaves, nearly all of them, uh, into members of the proper functioning members of a sort of globalised free market democracy. How attractive is that? I, I, the way I want to answer this is I was looking to buy some luggage in 2008. I went into, I think it was John Lewis, and I saw all these different items of luggage that I might buy. And I said, well, okay, what about this one? And what about this one? And, um, and I said, why is that one so much cheaper? And he said, oh, oh that one's made in China. I said, oh, okay, well, what, why don't I just buy the name brand then? He said, well, that one's made in China as well. 
I said, well, okay. Well, <laughs> well, I said, well, which one isn't made in China? And he said, they're all made in, in China. So I think yeah. you're going to have a problem not buying stuff from China because pretty much everything <laughs> is. Now, there could, there could be, if the governments want to move into this idea of, of uh, there is a, a strategic risk in dealing with China or any other country because something like this can happen again, then yes, I think you've you, you know there will be uh, a great um, increase in in industrial production in various countries taking on the uh, the role that China's taken, and and that's a po- very positive thing. I think it's good. I think we should make stuff in the UK and not import it, and I think the Americans and everyone else should do the same. And China can just deal with production for China, which is probably going to be very high anyway, given the way the population grows. But I think we're going to find it extremely hard to switch. It's a bit like using Amazon. You might want to use the high street, but the fact that you can buy your book, you know, cheaper and get it for free is in the end what's going to drive consumers, you know, e- even, yeah, even yeah. after this event. Most people hate Amazon, but we but we all still use it anyway, even though most people hate it. Yeah. Same with China. And it's, um, it's going to be very difficult. I, I, I agree with you, Paul, to, to some degree on this because I think – uh, I suspect that after all of this is over, and even while it's still going on, in fact, we'll start moving our production towards, uh, or, or rather there'll be a public clamour for us to have a certain amount of security, food security particularly. That'll be the yes. number one. We'll have to, you know, there won't be cuts to um, agricultural subsidies or anything like that that we were talking about during the whole Brexit negotiation. Um, I don't think any of that will happen. If anything, we'll have more agricultural subsidies. We're going to want more of our own food grown in this country. We're also going to want strategic ownership of of other important things. Uh, I think, for example, there's not going to be any more Huawei 5G involvement. Uh, I mean, well, what we've already signed, maybe that'll still go ahead. I don't know. I hope not. But but uh, in terms of any further developments in that respect, I don't think that will be happening in the future. We'll be trying to keep everything that's important, even perhaps a national airline. They may well bail out BA and and try and nationalize it in some way or at least have state investment in it to try and ensure that we always have our own flag carrier so that we can fly people around. Um I, I mean, you know, that kind of thing is is inevitable now because we've all got really scared about the fact that that so much of our stuff is, or so much of our life is dependent on other countries, whether it's China or anywhere else. And in an event like this, you suddenly realise actually maybe we need to keep a lot of that stuff at home. But as for the broader point that um, Tim was making about maybe this is the moment where everybody sort of decides that China. Uh, that we need to distance ourselves from China and maybe even have sort of informal sanctions. Oh, well, not sanctions. What's the word? Um, boycotts. Uh, boycotts, yeah. Um, I don't know whether or not people will go for that. At this point in time, yeah, everybody was really annoyed with China initially, but then everyone started getting respect for China for the way that they clamped down so severely once mm. they realized that it really was serious. And we all used them, in fact, as a model for how the rest of the world should behave. And, and in fact, if anything, there's been anger at Boris Johnson for not acting quickly enough, not acting Chinese enough, perhaps, in in that respect. But obviously, we're still in the panic phase anyway. When all of this calms down and people's, and and uh, we get towards the end of this crisis and people start thinking, 
maybe then people will start renewing their resentment against China's government for having Ooh. covered this all up in the first place and for having basically caused it all by their own selfishness and stupidity. May, I like to think that Tim's right and that people will come round to that way of thinking, but I'm not I'm not 100% convinced they will, though. In, I've got a dreadful feeling of that flying saucer squashed all my cabbages. <laughs> <laughs> in, in 2008, one of the things that I propose the government do, if you're going to spend a load of money, you may as well spend it on making us self-sufficient in power. And why we have, why we have like our power companies owned by foreign entities, I have absolutely no idea. That doesn't make any sense at all. That Clearly, that's a security risk. So if you wanted to invest money, food and power are the, the two basic things, as you've said, Glenn. And this is, this is where I, I just don't understand how governments think. You know, if, you've, if you think the economy is going to go into recession, instead of just cutting interest rates all the time, spend some money on something that's going to have a long-term return. If individual businesses can't take that on, that's that would be the role of government to create some form of, you know, national power um, scheme uh, in order to improve the country at the end of it. You know, instead of just getting people to dig holes and fill them up again for no reason. Yeah, I agree with you. We're all, you know, we're all socialists now, as of this week. Well, I, you know, I, <laughs> like I, I, last week we weren't, but this week suddenly we are, including, you know, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and even the Prime Minister. I mean, who, I, I, who's, I, you know, I, got libertarian instincts. I agree. I agree with what Tim's saying. I think principle, in principle, you know, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be dealing with with China. We should be dealing with, you know, supporting our own businesses. And but unfortunately, unfortunately, people do vote with their pocket. And if if things in the UK cost a lot more money, um, you can't have your iPhone for a thousand. It'd be for three thousand if it was made in in America because of you know the the, the amount that they're paid per hour, etc. Then, you know, is the man on the street going to care? No, they're they're not going to care where it's made. They just care that it's. That it um, that they can get hold of it for a cheaper price, and ever might cheaper can price. now though. I don't that's think the they will. That's where I, I don't possibly think disagree with you. Well, I, actually, I'm not. I don't know. We're all just speculating. We I don't, are, I'm we? not but sure. I, this is the biggest shock we've had in our lifetimes. You know, most people, including myself, well, including all of us, we've we've never known what it's like for something serious to happen. Yeah. You know, do you remember even a few, even those halcyon days just a month or so ago, where everybody thought Brexit was important yes, and people were true. falling out with their relatives, never speaking to their uncle again mm. because he liked Brexit and they didn't like Brexit, and it's like it's like it seems like such a petty little thing now. Well, I I, I remember eating out and having toilet paper. Yeah, yeah, and family uh, gatherings. I mean, happy, that was like happy the good days. old days. Good happy old days. days. I mean, you look at old <laughs> photos of Christmas and go, wow, we were all in the same room, even old people. That's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, look, I take your point completely. I mean, it, it just it does the man on the street, is the man on the street, man, woman on the street, going to say, that's it, I'm never buying anything from that's Chinese ever again? Or do they just say... God, that was awful. Can we just get back to normal as quickly as possible? Um, you know, and and I, what I love about I, Tim, I think Tim it's is so. Fear of future I, lo pandemic. I, I love I, what I love about Tim. He is so principled, and I think it's completely. It could look at the irony of Tim, who says that the he doesn't believe the the hype that the government are trying to make us pay for the fact that the climate is changing because the data doesn't support it. Doesn't have an ESG policy would like to invest wherever he wants but would never invest in china and you look at all the other companies 
who spout the complete opposite who do invest in China. I mean, that is principles for you, isn't it? That's just yeah, no, qu- I agree. Quite, quite amazing. Uh, Tim, Tim, you are a model of rectitude for us all <laughs> in that set. No, I, was, I, I was wondering where that was going for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, it sounds, I sound sarcastic, but I actually ag- totally agree. I yeah. think Tim is principled, and I think all of those companies with their ESG policies are utterly cynical. Yeah, yeah. It's just incredible, really. But will other people go along with Tim? That's the thing. And and I was just, uh, you know, on coming back on what you said, Paul. I think I you're saying, you know, when it's all over and everybody, everybody just wants to get back to their normal life. But there is, I think it's the fear of future pandemics. I think that fear will be there because we know, and the scientists will never tire of telling us, that this isn't a one-off and it could easily happen again. And also, even if we ban, even if the Chinese ban wet markets altogether, and there's no telling whether they will or not but even if they do and there are no more wet well even if they do and there are no more wet markets um the the science you know the i can only rely on the x the scientific experts and what they seem to be saying the ones i've been reading at least is that even with the banning of wet markets because we're also sort of tightly packed together there are so many human beings and they're always going to be in reasonably close proximity with wild animals, um, this this kind of thing can and will happen again. And it's sort of just lucky that it hadn't happened so far, but it will probably happen again soon. Or at least that's, that's you know, that's the story that they'll be selling. And, um, you know, Bill Gates has been warning about it for donkey's years that something like this was inevitable soon enough. And here it is. And Dominic Cummings. Dominic Cummings as well. He's done the same thing. True. And but Dominic I mean, Cummings. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to throw in my lot with populist politicians necessarily, but I'll give you just one example of, of why I'm slightly hopeful that it might be possible to affect this, you know, this hypothetical, fanciful, peace, peaceful regime change in a, in a, basically in a country I would now describe as our, our natural enemy. And it's, take, let's go back to 1945. So we've had six years of global war and, everyone, and the, everyone's exhausted, the world's exhausted, and this country's exhausted. Um, but surely grateful for having the war leadership of Churchill. If you were going to the elections in 19, the general elections in 1945, would you have voted for Churchill? I, I would have done, but I would have been in the minority because he got he got he got taken out of power. I think if if pe- people feel strongly enough about something, then amazing, extraordinary, surprising things happen. So if this is why I mentioned the populist politician thing, if enough populist politicians, or just call them politicians because they're all populist in one way or another, anyway. If enough politicians get on this bandwagon, I think you can shift the uh, the mood of the people quite easily, particularly if those people have lost relatives to this. Mm. Oh, that's a good point, which we haven't even really considered. Yeah, the, when all of this is over, there's going to be a lot of extremely unhappy and bitter people, sure. um, possibly including, you know, ourselves as well. We're going to feel... Oh, well, I mean, I, obviously, my, my, main, my main problem is the fact that, you know, German Donner Kebab is currently not on the menu and, you know, <laughs> things have to be done. Shit's got real. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that escalates quickly. Oh, my Lord. So, what's, what's so wet? How are we going to feel about China? Oh, it's impossible to imagine, isn't it? Yeah, because it is. We're all going to feel so differently at the end of this. I, I do, I do feel strongly that people will be scared of another pandemic and will be desperate to do anything to stop it happening again. That perhaps is what makes it different from the end of the Second World War. Is that at the end of the Second World War, from what I, from what I gather, everybody just kind of felt like, well, thank God that's over. Uh, you know, they didn't expect another Nazi mm. empire to sort of suddenly appear five minutes late. Well, actually, it kind of did, and because they had the Russians, I suppose. But. Um, 
Actually, yeah, that's a that's a point. I hadn't really considered that. Maybe part of the red peril, the kind of the, and and the sort of the terror of communism in the 1950s in America. Part of that was a reaction to the Nazi threat and having been terrified then and just being desperate not to have another kind of uh, totalitarian empire um, sort of unleash its fury upon America. So, so they were traumatized from that and that played into how they felt about the communism thing. And likewise, um, our reaction to this pandemic will play into how we feel about the future of the way that the world should be organized, whether it should be more globalized or less globalized, because we'll be terrified about the same thing happening again. Perhaps the emergency procedures that would be put in place to stop it, you know, um, next time. I mean, I'm optimistic that that this, once we've got through this, this has taught us a lesson that we need to spend more money on it. Like however much money the governments spend now between governments, however much they spend, they're going to realise that it's, it's worth doing in order to stop this this happening again. I mean, if if it's going to happen, what you want to be able to do is just to lock down very quickly in the area where it's occurred and make sure everybody has a, a procedure and a plan and a plan B um, for making as much work as possible, but yet stopping the spread of the virus. So I think if it, it will obviously happen at some point, again, in maybe a few years or, or whatever, but at least this way, the testing procedures will come very quickly and... Um, you know, we will lock down much faster. So hopefully we can stop, you know, getting to this point because there was obviously a period where it was just in China. If they'd locked down really quickly, it wouldn't have gone on. If it happens in another country, then they, we would know that that country needs to lock down very quickly. It would be bad for them, but maybe we can have some form of global support system where everybody works together if there's this pandemic threat. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this will lead to, to better outcomes and perhaps whilst this is a terrible virus and it has caused untold economic damage, it could have still have been worse. It, it potentially could have been much worse. Yeah, but that will be the fear that next time maybe it'll be an even worse type of virus. I mean, there might even, we've talked about the possibility of retrenchment and countries wanting to have their, like I was wanting to have our own food security and power security and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, maybe there'll be a public clamour for, dare I say it, technocratic world government yeah. in order that there can be a, a enormous coordination between uh, states to prevent any future outbreak, uh, well, to basically contain it immediately. Because our problem this time around was we didn't have any powerful international institution that could keep tabs on China and force China to do uh, what it should have been doing very early on. And then even when we did know about it, and it hadn't yet spread all over the world, there was still nothing really much being done to stop it spreading all over the world. I mean, America banned travel, uh, you know, China travel quite early on, but that was only a sticking plaster because there were still Chinese people, you know, traveling via various different destinations and finding their way into America via different routes and, and also people they've been in contact with in other country you know it was unstoppable yeah. and so there may be a clamor for for a real high level technocratic 
world government, whether it's the IMF or any or the World Bank or who or some new organization altogether, to just keep us safe. People are always going to put their need for safety above their need for freedom and other more nebulous but important concepts like that. That you know, the first priority is we all want to be safe. I we think, all want daddy to look after us, you know. I think that's Interna- I think, international I think, rescue. Go, the yeah. Thunderbirds. I think I yeah, think I think yeah. this is a perfect or indeed the David Miliband version. I think they're going to want. Maybe maybe not that. (laughs) People are going to be signing away their human rights very quickly, aren't they? I mean, this is if anything's going to make people say, "Okay, yeah, track me," and everywhere I've been, and every every person I've spoken to, and everyone I've been in contact with, if ever ever there was an argument for that, this is it, you know. And they find it very easy to bring it in because people would say, "Well, yeah, because of that." I mean, prior to that, you'd say, "No way," but. Yeah. after it you know how could you argue against it it's very very hard i mean it's very hard yeah. you know well, exactly how, how do we square that how do we square that if, if you got asked to 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 put your i mean we're already being tracked by our phones anyway and uh you know in the western world or anyone who's got a smartphone is being tracked by the ad the, you know the ad companies but you know for the government to be able to to do that or access that data for the purpose of of virus suppression um I'd find it very hard to say no to that. Yeah, exactly. Look, I mean, would you have ever expected a tweet like this? Owen Jones, of all people, uh, tweeted yesterday, I never thought I'd be relieved to be placed under house arrest along with millions of people under a police state by a right-wing Tory government. Yeah, so like, yeah see how even suddenly Owen Jones is welcoming the police, the, the right wing Tory police state into his world. And, you know, even a few weeks ago, that would have been or even a week ago, probably that would have been anathema to him. To, to be fair, Owen Jones can be relied, you know, relied upon to be consistently wrong about absolutely everything all the time. ever. ever. <laughs> true. <laughs> true indeed. I agree with that. So, Glenn, um, what what are you thinking um, about sort of you mentioned a little bit about your strategy about as to how you're going to approach your trading bitcoin you don't think seen the low yet the markets you don't think have seen the low yet are there any levels or are you just looking for what you described earlier as a spike and a panic and and a massive bounce that what we call a spike reversal in technicals that indicates that the market is has you know ended its selling pressure. Yeah, I want to see what me and Tim both agreed we would like to see the capitulation, you know, a sort of a a big, a big, uh, a big heave. Yeah, one last, one big heave. That's what we'd like to see. But uh, look, I've, I said earlier on that this could be 1987 in, in market terms. We could have already hit the bottom and then it just slowly and painfully rises over a long period of time. And that's the thing that scares me because I'll be left behind to a certain point. And then no doubt I will capitulate at some point and start buying in probably just at the wrong time. You know, that's, that's how these things tend to work, isn't it? So that's the thing that's, that scares me. And I know it's a possibility, yet, as, as you quite rightly point out, I think it's far more likely that we just haven't hit the bottom yet. But you, you, you seem to be doing all right, Glenn. So, you know, let, let's face oh, it. You, you, oh, yeah. So your instincts have been spot on and, you know, you got out of the market, you, you kind of had a feeling it was all going to tumble and it did. But you're, you're keeping your powder dry. And, and, yeah, and at the mainly moment, in cash. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing you know, massive. I just don't want to be left behind, you know, yeah. the, the FOMO. 
yeah. fear of missing out is what uh, is what is the only thing that's keeping me awake. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's a nice problem to have, really, isn't it? Yeah. As opposed to oh, my my children are going to starve, which would be a worse problem. Or, <laughs> so, or, or you having to so go yeah, back to I be mean, a presenter uh, or something. Uh, <laughs> <so> yeah. <laughs> Paul, tell me, we have that involuntary vocal shiver recorded for all time that we yeah. can use. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah, we've got it. <laughs> it's a great, yeah. it's a great noise. Really yeah. great noise. When I'm presenting Strictly Come Dancing, you can play that back to that's, me. Yeah. That's right, yeah. But uh, I don't know. Look, yeah, it's the, the, the other bit was relatively easy in a weird kind of way because, like I said, there were some very clear signs. There was the sign that the market, particularly in America, was a massive bubble and had been for donkey's years. And there was the sign that we had this virus on the horizon that was clearly going to cause big economic damage. So, you know, I had I had triggers for my action, whereas now... I kind of don't. I'm at the mercy of events and at the mercy of government decisions now. So it's really hard to know whether to, when, well, when to start going long. I've got to go long sometime, but should I be going long this week or should I be going long in a year's time? As Tim says, we could get that attrition just going on and on and on. Last thing I want to do after my success in having escaped the the horrors, uh, financial horrors here, last thing I want to do is get in and then have another massive, uh, plummet in the market, take out tons of my cash. So, oh Lord, it's it's a it's a tough one. I'm uh, I'm staying on the sidelines until I see. I need a sign. Yeah. I need uh, some kind of deity to give me a sign. What about looking at markets? What about looking at um, say markets outside of the major sort of more like emerging market uh, countries that that nobody's looking at? I mean, it, you know, people who who would be affected less, but perhaps a, a different point in the in the cycle um so that they haven't had the chance to have their stock markets uh artificially inflated and therefore you, you might get a cleaner kind of take on the technicals and the fundamentals there well funny enough uh the chinese market <laughs> is looking <laughs> <laughs> though, though, uh, no, no, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> oh, I feel really bad now because for principled reasons, you see, I wouldn't have even considered this a few weeks ago. I would have been like, China's looking good. Yeah, I'll invest in China. But now, um, you know, Tim makes a good point, and suddenly my own my own social responsibility comes into play. Even though I don't have a fund to have a, his own social responsibility policy, I guess I need my own personal policy. And yet, from a technical point of view, the Chinese market has not fallen significantly. Do you know where it's back to now? I'm just looking now. The China A50, we're looking at 4th of March 19. So mm. almost exactly a year ago is where it's back to. It's, it's held up better than almost any other market in the world. And I guess that is primarily due to their very quick and totalitarian action in um, putting a stop to the spread of the virus. Though, of course, once they start allowing people to walk about freely again, you, you could get that second win for the virus in China, and that could change things for their market. I think the Chinese market's been welded into its own house for the foreseeable future. So. You can't necessarily trust its pricing. Manipulating it, right, right. Well, it wouldn't be the first time, put it that no. way. <laughs> it wouldn't at all. We can't really, yeah, you're quite right. We can't really trust any data that comes out, even the even the stock market data. Yeah. 
and and so, but you're not looking for a capitulation in the Bitcoin price, though, are you? Because uh, or, or are you before you get in there? Only if the stock market crashes again. If the stock market does what it did before or something similar, then it will drag everything down again, uh, including all the stuff that it dragged down before, possibly like gold and treasury bonds and all the rest of it. But Bitcoin would almost certainly be in the firing line too. You know, when the market goes negative in a big way, everything just suddenly correlates. Yes. And there is no safe haven apart from cash. Do you, When we were talking last time, I remember we were discussing whether um, Ethereum would be one of the kind of leaders and take the the place of Bitcoin. And it seems like that's not been the case, even though it is a far more advanced technology. Bitcoin mm. still seems to be the standard. Would, would you say that's true? It is. It is, sadly, and which is weird because, as you as you say, I mean, I would have thought the Bitcoin name. I mean, I know it's a big brand now and everybody's heard of it, but I did expect a bit more sense to start moving into the whole process mm. than you know, after the big Bitcoin boom and crash in 2018, I thought maybe the shine would have gone off the Bitcoin name and people could start looking a bit more dispassionately at some of the incredible technologies that are still coming through. You know, there's still a hell of a lot of work being done behind the scenes. The The blockchain industry and the, and the cryptocurrency industry have just been chugging along doing their own thing quietly, rather like the tech industry did after 2003. You know, Amazon yeah. got on with it. It didn't worry about its share price crash. It got on with with its slow rise to become the biggest one of the biggest companies in the world. And likewise, there are incredibly clever uh, cryptocurrency technologies made by some of the cleverest people in the world that are still being developed and getting better and better. And yet, yeah, it's not at all reflected in the prices. Uh, the prices are still absolutely in the doldrums. Bitcoin. Uh, price-wise, has held up better than practically everything else. Yeah. And that is disappointing because, as you can tell, I'm just not the biggest fan of Bitcoin. It's the original, and it's certainly not the best. It's, it's a prototype, if you will, for, for what has come later. And yet, so many people are still attached to it. That makes it sound a lot more like it is pure speculation than, than anything yeah. else. Because as you, as you rightly say, when, once you look into the difference between the two technologies, there's no reason why you would want to invest in Bitcoin rather than, rather than the superior Ethereum. So it's, it, is, it is interesting. It is interesting. And it's interesting also, I think, how, how well correlated uh, the cryptocurrencies were with this, this downdraft. I mean, of course, everything was sold from, from soft commodities to uh, you know, precious metals to uh, base metals, everything got got smacked. Um, so that that is to be expected. But you know, by now, I would have thought people have had time to do the sort of research that you did very early on and come to a conclusion about what might be the future. But I'm also interested, you know, in what you were saying earlier about the governments developing their own, because that just seemed like the most logical thing um, to me. Why why would why would the government not start to play in the same market? Because it's a, a perfect way to to track every single transaction that they can't really do at the moment. Yeah, they are. They're, they're going to do it. And in terms of actual currency, I, I expect one or other or several of the governments in the world to continue to dominate the world of currency as they have done in the past. I don't think for one second that the central banks are going to allow something like Bitcoin to, to take over. I mean, it's... 
it's a possibility. It could it could become a much bigger player on the sidelines, but I think it'll always be on the sidelines because central banks show no signs of going anywhere. They're still very much in charge. So that's why I'm so much more bullish on other cryptocurrencies because they involve clever technologies that aim to transform industries that have nothing much really to do with finance that are to do with other things like insurance or the taxi industry or many, many other industries um, where the middlemen can be taken out of the equation by just using a very clever bit of uh, computer code, which is what most of these cryptocurrencies amount to. The word currency is kind of misleading to some degree in in cryptocurrency, which is why a lot of people now like to talk about distributed ledgers or, or blockchains and try and avoid cryptocurrency as a as a term altogether but uh, i am uh, there is one thing i wanted to ask i'm going to change subject absolutely completely because there was one thing which was one of the main reasons why um i was happy that we were doing this podcast in the first place i wanted to ask tim about the value strategy because when he replied to my tweet the other day he's uh, when i was basically slagging off tracker funds and saying look at the FTSE, it's back to where it was in 1997 uh, these magic tracker funds haven't exactly delivered on the on the promise that we were always told that you know they always come back up you know you you it doesn't matter if the market goes down because the the tracker will always come back up yes back to where it was in 97 um but Tim replied by saying, well, that, you know, something along the lines of, well, that's why value investing is the way to go. Because I'd said the way to go is mm. uh, buying bottoms and selling tops. And he said, value is the way to go. And I said, well, you know, are we looking at the same thing, but just using a different methodology? But it's the same principle in the sense that both me and Tim look to buy things that are sort of downtrodden to some degree, but which show promise price-wise for the future. And then we aim to sell those same things one day when when they don't have that same price promise necessarily for the future. The question I wanted to ask was about when we reached the top of this market and things started crashing and it was clear that there was a massive economic impact of coronavirus, doesn't that at that point mean that a lot of the shares that show strong, strongly in value terms are no longer showing strongly in value terms. And even though the price earnings ratio, for example, won't, you know, because we haven't got the next quarter's profit figures or whatever. So we don't know yet that the price earnings ratio of a particular share uh, has um changed very dramatically. Nonetheless, you kind of know implicitly that that is going to be the case. And therefore, a lot of the shares that were previously uh, classified as value shares would no longer be value shares at the point where we know there's going to be a recession or a depression. In, in, in a bear market, value stocks get cheaper and growth stocks get cheaper. But the difference is value stocks will survive and some of the growth stocks won't. Right. I mean, is that because the value stocks are utilities or, or it, mainly? It's, no, or? It's, you know, no, I mean, the way we look at it is it's very much company specific. But as I say, in relation to Japan, for example, a lot of these companies have no debt. Companies with high levels of debt going into this crisis, for some, it's going to be an extinction level event. Whereas, as Ben Graham said, uh, for a value stock, if you like it at 100, you have to like it even more at 50. Uh, because it's basically quote bulletproof by comparison to the other the rest of the market. You may have to be patient to. Uh, sorry, I was say, won't a lot of those stocks uh, get? Uh, I mean, the ones that have a lot of debt. Surely they're going to be the ones that end up getting bailed out by governments. Well, that's a separate argument. But I, I can't. You know, we can't factor in the possible behaviour of governments interfering with the market process. But assuming 
assuming that there's an orderly and fair and transparent market and and fair price discovery, then you know that that then basically crap crap gets thrown out and the good stuff rises in the fullness of time. But bear in mind, we also use momentum, so we're we're not averse to using momentum strategies too. The difference is momentum. You're going with the flow. Value. You're very much going against the flow. Yeah. Well, I I I really like your. Uh... Your generalized, I, I like your general strategy of employing different strategies and ones that are often in uh, conflict with each other or rather contrast very strongly with each other because you get a much smoother equity curve that way. I've certainly thought about uh, combining things like trend following with mean reversion, which is becoming more and more popular now as a sort of dual strategy in order to smooth the, the long-term equity curve by getting so, so, you know, when one strategy is performing poorly, the other one's doing well and vice versa. So yeah, I think I think basically for me, what it comes down to is just a sensible array of very uncorrelated things. And you know, if they're properly uncorrelated, then at any one time, some will work, some won't. But assuming they're sensibly constructed, then over time, you'll you've got the odds on your side, which is really just coming down to being discriminating. The reason I don't like the indexed and benchmarked approach is you have to own everything in the market, and not everything is worth buying. End of story. Yeah, you can't argue with that. No, <laughs> can't <laughs> argue with that. I guess, I guess, I kind of feel if this was a normal recession, I don't know if there's such a thing as a normal recession because the last one didn't feel very normal either. No. Um, but I suppose if it were a <laughs> something like I don't know the one in the early '90s, say, uh, I would, I would totally appreciate what you're saying about value stocks. It's just that this one is so crazy that. I mean, maybe I'd need to hear some specific examples to kind of to make it more convincing. But what are these companies that you are so convinced will ride out even the 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 whole of the economy being shut down for three months and all the rest of it, or even more, much longer than three months? Aussie gold miners with no debt, for example. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> anything else? Uh, Canadian gold miners with little or no debt. <laughs> Other other countries have operating gold miners. <laughs> okay, I get the idea. Yeah, Any, yeah. I mean, dare I ask? You'll probably give me a, an obvious answer here, but anything apart from gold miners? That yeah, I- yeah. So uh, yeah, well, I, I, basically, we know kind of it's very much bottom up. So it's it's not sectoral even because some com- companies in the same sector will have completely different funding. But we know broadly what the kind of, uh, call them safe haven sectors are likely to be. Food is one of them. Right now, supermarkets is likely to be one of them. Alcohol is probably going to be one of them. Um, so things like food, booze, even cigarettes, not that I would necessarily you know endorse that, but all these things that are kind of, Almost quasi monopolies in some respects, but stuff that people will continue to buy, regardless. And I think at the moment we've been buying some supermarket stuff recently. So uh, in the states, um, there's there's always opportunities, but the, the 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 stuff we're absolutely most interested in is you know is cash flow, is you know low low multiples across the beast, and little or no debt. And if it if a company meets those metrics, it doesn't really matter what sector it's in. Um, but I stress that as, as far as we're concerned, the key discriminating factor is going to be companies entering this crisis uh, with high debt levels. Unless they get bailed out, it may be game over for them. So we just rather not we just not, rather not engage with them to begin with. Oh, that makes sense. And um, something that I mean, can I mention a particular one? Ocado, for example, which a lot of people have got their eye on. Uh, 
you know momentum traders and so on because of all the of all the shares uh it's held up sort of better than most it's almost it's almost sort of still at an all-time high uh for obvious reasons I mean, um you, you let's see think, it's you, come you off badly think, the last few days but it was doing really think, well you kind of you think, think it ought to be because if any i mean so i don't know if i mentioned earlier this on this this thing there's sort of red amber green sectors but if anything looks like it's you know it, it looks like a, a, a solid proposition i don't know the financing but but the if anything it sounds like a solid proposition it's upmarket food delivery I mean <laughs> how how can you possibly go wrong and the oil prices collapsed so one of their input costs just went through the floor yes yeah that's true good point and the oil price probably won't be recovering anytime soon or not in a major way uh, and what about American shares that what I mean what about Amazon for instance uh, so, yeah yeah it's still quite near an all time high. But I mean, I, 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 yeah, so we break the market down into like good growth and bad growth. So people sort of use these terms uh, as if everyone's agreed on what they mean, but they don't. They, they mean different things to different people. But Amazon, I'd say, I, again, I don't know the full metrics, but Amazon is probably too rich for our, our blood as value investors, but it's probably growing. Whereas people are at risk, investors are at risk of buying what they think are growth stocks and they're not even growing revenues. So that's just a you know, contradiction in terms to us. Mm. What do you think, Paul? Um, Paul? Yeah, I'm oh, sorry, so, sorry. I was just busy trying to get an Ocado order in. It's uh, take, taking a bit of time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. You see, I, I, um, I think the way that anybody should approach the market is the way that works best for them. And and mm. it sounds like you know, I, I think what Tim's done is is very unusual in the sense that he is a value investor, but has looked at these other uh, non correlated strategies, which is perfect, really. But that works for the way his his you know his structure for how he approaches the market. For me, there will always be opportunities shorting or going long all different asset classes, right right from you know the majors to the individuals to you know currencies, future cryptocurrencies, and whatever they might be, wherever whatever else the market might be. So. Um, for me, it's just like, well, what's in a trend? I just don't care. Like corn might be going up or, or wheat or I, d- I don't see how, um, you know, basic things like uh, copper or, or base metals can potentially go to zero. So I'd be looking at those. Um, but I, I hear all those arguments. It's just what are you personally going to be doing in terms of, of research into those things? So I, I, would, I would wager that, Tim does quite a lot of research looking into companies and ends up with just a handful that that meet his criteria. Whereas for mm-hmm. me, you could scan a you know a hundred stocks relatively quickly, find two that are screaming buy, a screaming buy, and two that are screaming sell, and that's your hedge. That's your hedge fund. Mm. And and so it's whatever works, whatever works for the individual. And uh, I mean, I think I think where we're I think where we're all on the same page is that it makes surely sense for anybody to maximise their opportunity set. And the, so the problem I I have conceptually with how most investors, how I suspect most retail investors are even now positioned is they're probably in some variation through their broker or financial advisor of a in a sixty forty portfolio, sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds. Well, I would love to know how that portfolio is going to fare through this crisis, but I don't think it'll be very well. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I always I think do it yourself. You. I always think you you can get it wrong yourself, so you may as well mm. either just decide to give it to somebody else to do better than you, or if you're going to do it yourself, just 
you, you've got to work hard. As you, I mean, look, you know, Glenn, better than anybody. Um, if, if somebody said to you, okay, I want to replicate your performance, um, but actually I don't really want to look at charts and I don't really want to be following data of viruses um, out in China because, you know, that, that sounds boring. I just want to watch Netflix. You say, well, it's, this isn't for you. Just really, it comes down to your own personality. And if we look at what Warren Buffett does, you know, he, he would rather be sat in his room reading company accounts than he would be doing anything else. That's what he loves. So in, in the end, it really has to come down to not necessarily, they're, they're, well, the way I put it is there's many different ways to get to the top of the mountain. And it's the way that you want to do it that matters, not the way that somebody else wants to do it. Neither are, are neither invalidate the other. They're just different ways. And yeah. you've just got to find your own particular way. But I, having, through Tim's influence, I've looked into value investing. I think it's fascinating. I love the idea of it. And, yeah. you, you know, I would stop and look at a company like Ocado or Tesco or whatever and say, yeah, in this environment, um, whenever everything bounces back, it's potentially got much further to go. Um, and I can hear all the arguments for some of the other stocks. Um, but that that's still... I'm going to take it a lot more seriously in this, uh, you know, because there is an opportunity, hopefully there will be an opportunity uh, to get some cheap stocks at some point once all of this is 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 finished yeah once the capitulation is over or the attrition or all the other things we've talked about and um you know i don't just want to be looking at charts because they might not make the right patterns at the bottom and whilst well, i, I do like do. those patterns they might not it might not you know might not happen and so uh i do need to look at uh, i mean i used to do a lot of value investing when i was much younger and as you say it's it's kind of what you're into i just got into other things it wasn't a decision where oh I don't think value investing works. I knew I knew it could work. It was working for me years ago, but um, I just moved into other things. But now I'm thinking, yeah, time for more of a combination of strategies to to find those those perfect stocks once uh, once the time is right. I read a great book by Peter Seelern. I don't know if you. I'm sorry if that's pronounced wrong, but it's it's called Only the Best Will Do. And it's a fascinating book on on value investing and literally just the process of going through and finding the absolute best companies, the ones that are going to make money, no matter what the market environment is. If you haven't read it, I would suggest getting a copy because uh, I oh, think that's okay. a good, uh. now that's a, it's a good place to start. To, to start. The other book is one that hasn't been written yet, and I'd love Tim to write one. And he argues that there's already books out there, but I just think a book written by Tim Price on how to, on his take on value investing would be fantastic. Unfortunately, I think the markets are too volatile for him to to want to do it, or 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 playing a a uh, computer game might, might take a precedence. But I'd absolutely love him to write a book on it because I think it, it would be. There's book. nothing. There's nothing wrong with shooting the Bosch out of the sky for half the day, Paul. I, I, I commend. I commend it to anybody. But Tim, would you? I mean, that's a question for both of you guys because you could both be writing a new book, uh, or you, you know, Glenn certainly you could be writing a two point and and. Tim, will you will you ever write a book on value investing? Quite possibly. I'm not sure I've got much to say because everyone's already said it. So but it's all your it take, is a variation on a variation on a theme. But it's your take on it. I mean, even if you're referring to how other people have done it, it's it's um and it's also the presentation of ideas. It's it's like if you take um you know what IBM was creating as a computer, all Apple did was create exactly the same but present it in a completely different way, and that 
that just changed people's perceptions of ugly boxes to sleek, lovely design computers that that did basically the same thing, but just looked different. And and I think having someone else's take, especially with the the global events that we've seen, would be very much welcome. Um, but you know that that's uh, that's just me. Maybe 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 other people don't feel the same way. But I, I'd I'd love to read a book about value investing written by you. But but Glenn, what what do you do you think that's a possibility for you to write another book? Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I expect I will at some point in the next few years uh, write another book. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm weighing up various ideas in my head at the moment of things I'd quite like to write about. But there's so many things I want to do. I want to yeah. make more videos. I used to make loads, loads of videos for the internet, and they and they went down very well. People like them because I I set up a green screen studio and did it all nicely using my TV skills, the skills I'd learned as a TV reporter and um chroma key yeah all that business you know editing I, I know how to do advanced editing myself you know i can do it all myself but it, um so oh, there's so much i need to do yeah. and i've also got an in tray with unopened posts next to me and ah oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's too much because the markets are just taking all my focus at the moment and i know they shouldn't because there's always a tendency to over trade if i'm staring at them all day but it's kind of hard not to at the moment it's like you know if there's a car crash going on you've got to stare at that car crash you yeah. can't ignore it why not put some um sort of trigger levels in so when the market hits a certain point it alerts you to it so you might say well you know i'd be interested if the dow was like say a thousand points yeah. low i'll have a look at it or or higher and then that frees you up from just staring at the screen, watching it sort of do whatever. Funnily it's enough, I I did have that idea, but I started setting so many alerts on so many different markets <laughs> that I was just getting alerts all day long. It's driving me mad, and I hate it. I hate that feeling. I always get like a, a lurch in my stomach every time one of those alerts triggers because I follow everything like you, Paul. I'm you know I'm indiscriminate. So for example, I'm really irritated that I missed the orange juice trade three days ago. I don't know if you saw that market or if you've had your eye on it, but there was a beautiful breakout in orange juice uh, three days ago, which had you know a year of the market just moving slowly downwards in a kind of sidewaysy downwards lazy way. And then, bang! Out it come. And the second it the second it erupted, I wasn't there. I hadn't set my alert for orange juice. Why didn't I set my alert for orange juice? I don't know. But then I'd missed it. I felt it was probably too late to get in. And now I look at it today. It's up. It's up like twenty percent in um, orange juice. Is up twenty percent in two or three days. And it's closing on Could the high as well. Fortune, Paul. Could have made a fortune. Yeah, they'll always they'll always be, be on top of everything. There'll always be this more opportunities. There's, I need like a whole empire. I need like 50 staff to keep yeah. an eye on these things. Yeah, the Glenn Goodman trading uh, team. You know, you could you could have your, your you know your Padwan learner and take someone on. I mean, that's what that's what other people do. So you know, maybe you maybe know that's Jesse Livermore, one of my heroes. He what he did. I don't know if you've ever read about his setup that he had. Oh, many times over. Yeah, I've got all, all the books on him. Yeah. So he did that, you know, about he, he had this big office where um, he had dozens of employees who were all, uh, most of them spent their day uh, writing up prices yes. on a giant board. For no reason. And what, and what was, yeah, what was fascinating was that he didn't allow them to speak. So all these dozens of, of young men were not allowed to say a word through the entire working day. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, it doesn't sound fun, does it? No. 
I don't know if they'd win the Glassdoor Best Employer of the Year award. Sounds like he was in China to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was just so serious about the whole thing. Like his mental process must not be interrupted. And there were so many markets that he was kind of trying to keep tabs on at the same time. Whereas me, obviously, you can see I'm not taking it quite so seriously, obviously. So uh, so I miss things from time to time and it is annoying. But but ultimately, you know, this is the way I choose to live. I like it this way. I don't want a bunch of employees. I don't want any employees, frankly. I like doing it all myself doing my own thing and if i miss the odd signal here and there because i'm not paying proper attention and i'm only a human being then so be it i'm all right i'm doing all right that that's the thing about the markets isn't it once you once you get bitten by the bug it is all consuming and you can't you find it very hard to turn off you find it very hard to turn off at night and the next day and even at the weekend but it is really important yeah. to do that. Um, but it's just hard, especially in this environment. I don't know how you... Well, Tim, you seem to... Tim sort of... This is why Tim's strategy seems to work so well, because he hasn't necessarily had to change a lot of what he's, what he's planned for, whereas everyone else is probably scrambling to, to you know, change their strategy. This was all part of the plan. I mean, it's partly because I hate to I hate to trade if if I can avoid it, and I hate to market time because I'm no good at it. So the combination of the two means we need something a process that can keep us mostly invested for most of the time, if not all of the time, albeit across you know a lot of discrete different things. So yeah, it's it's, it's something that's I think probably suits me to also willing to be patient. And not everybody, to be fair, is so. Like you said earlier, Paul, you need a strategy that basically is one that you feel completely aligned with. And if you're doing something that feels uncomfortable, you should try doing something else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. And let's not forget that, you know, Jesse Livermore, I mean, you know, he ended up uh, committing you know, suicide. Met, yeah, exactly. Mm. Ended up blowing his brain down. He's one of the most successful traders in history. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I had a chapter on that in my book or a section about, you know, how that happened to him. And oh, Spoiler alert, anybody. <laughs> it, it didn't end so well the, poor Jesse <laughs> ruin the book but yeah I mean you know that and that was that's the thing is if you if you try and live that life where you're trying to make the optimum profit and you and you uh, torture yourself every time you make a mistake and you insist all your employees are silent because nothing must be spoiled and every signal must be taken perfectly and then and and then you become so obsessed with uh, when when he did make losses he would sometimes become obsessed with chasing after those losses and trying to make up for them and we all know what happens when people do that and so he would win and lose fortunes over and over again and and you know all of that led to his well all of that was fed by his depression initially anyway but also it it obviously fed the depression too and it became a kind of vicious circle for him um i don't want to live that kind of life as i say i'm i'm doing fine and I, you know, I don't need yachts and all the rest of it. And I mean, he had yachts, and you know what? I don't know if you remember Paul from the books, but every time he went on a yachting holiday, um, he'd he'd buy and he'd stop at a, a dock, you know, maybe on day three of the holiday or whatever, buy a newspaper, see that something was happening in the cotton market, and then he'd cancel his holiday, tell all his friends who he'd gone on the yacht with to go home, and and he'd sod off back to New York because he said he had to be near the action, and so he <laughs> he never really got to enjoy his fortune anyway yeah yeah that that's the thing i mean it's but then again it's like people like buffett do it for the game and that's 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 it like the the money keeps score i think a lot of people who enjoy trading and who are successful do it for the game um yeah the money is great but it's it's um it, it can be 
it can take your focus away from from the opportunity, as it were. And I think that that is something that that makes it such a psychological, uh, psychologically difficult thing to put into effect. Because yeah, I mean, how do you deal with the fact that orange juice has gone up so aggressively and probably could go another ten percent? Who knows? And you'd be thinking, well. I should have bought it even though it was higher or you go in and buy it and of course then it dumps and you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, it's, it's, especially when you're on your own, that's, it's really difficult to deal with that. But um, wh- one of the things I always think is you, you've, you've got to have a sense of humor. Like some of the best traders I know have this constant sort of air of a sense of humor, but they're deadly serious about what they're doing. And it's only, only that that sort of helps them to relieve the, the market stress you know, so, um, but the way you write and the way you seem to approach the market, you come across as so optimistic and as, as though you're enjoying it, as long as that, that remains, um, you know, you're definitely doing the right thing for you. I think Dick Jesse Livermore obviously was a depressive character who just happened to be very good at reading price. Yeah. I mean, I'm enjoying it at the moment. I mean, you know, you've caught me at a good time because, because <laughs> I read the market quite well and I've saved my money from, from being lost in, uh, in the market meltdown. So yeah, obviously I'm, I'm happy at the moment. I can't honestly claim that I'm always happy with trading and that, and that I'm always having a fantastic time. It can, as we all know, be extremely stressful uh, at times. But yeah, I'm trying to, you know, I'm concentrating a lot more on the psychological aspects these days as I get older, trading relatively cautiously, uh, preservation of capital being by far the most important thing. You know, I'm very proud of the fact that that I haven't had a a blowout uh, of my trading account ever. Well, not since the year 2000 when I just had a few thousand pounds of savings. I think I told you about this last time and I, I blew it all by um, by letting a share th- yes. that I put all my savings into go down to zero. That, that was, was the gaming you know, show, that was wasn't my, it? That was the game yes, show, Yes, that's it? right. Well, remembered. yeah, it was called Gameplay. And, you know, that was, that was my baptism of fire. And then I determined that I was going to learn to trade properly. And, yeah, I've made stupid mistakes in the years since. I'm only human, of course. I sometimes make stupid mistakes. But none of those mistakes has ever cost me a, a really significant chunk of my trading capital. I'm just, I'm too cautious for that. And being cautious, of course, means that I... You know, with the, the the relatively small amount of capital that I've built up over the years, I'm uh, unless I take on other people's money, I'm not going to become like some super rich billionaire. And I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, I'm happy with the idea that I trade carefully. I I am at virtually no risk of blowing up my account because I'm careful. I make good enough money to live a great life and be happy with my wife and children and everything's lovely and yeah, yeah. would you would you ever would you ever manage me. would you ever manage money for someone else i don't obviously the it's been suggested to me lots of times Ooh. and and as with tim i mean i don't know how it all started for you tim but in terms of managing other people's money but in my case it's it's been people i know who go look i've got half a million in savings well, can you just manage it for me and i say well i'd have to get a license and all that but you know that is a lot of money you're offering me to manage and it would be a good start and that's you know that's happened to me with lots of well not lot loads of different people but several different people mm. have offered me pretty big chunks of money to start with and so i've i've obviously considered it very seriously and yet when push came to shove i always just thought 
I don't know. I, th- I think the main thing that puts me off, and Tim will be all too familiar with this, I'm sure, is the is is just other people's expectations and having to manage their expectations and explain to them why maybe I haven't made money for them this month and why maybe I've lost a bit of money this quarter or you know I don't I don't I can't be bothered with it I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Tim, how does it how does it work for you? No, that's, no, that's absolutely right. This business would be terrific if it wasn't for the clients. <laughs> <laughs> If you could just take their money and not their personalities, that would be ideal. <laughs> no, you, you're right. But basically what it really amounts to is, that, and this is the thing that's, that, that I, again, at the risk of sounding like I'm sending my soapbox again, which I am anyway, uh, is it, it, it's almost impossible for big houses to offer this because, you know, we know all our clients personally and we're in the process of talking to them now uh, and just sort of talking about the markets and, and you know, everything else. Big houses do not have that. Uh, they, they simply, it doesn't, it, they're too big to be able to offer that service. So you do not have a personal service with an asset gathering firm. Um, and it, or put it this way, all of the best managers we know, because we're perfectly happy to, you know, to, to work with third-party managers. We can't do everything. No, we're, we're a small shop. So all of the best managers we know are small boutiques, um, and that will always be the case. And they're small because they would rather concentrate on performance than on marketing, say. Um, and it, it is the one difficulty is when you have a misalignment of understanding, say, between the manager and the clientele. And the very best managers, I suspect, also probably uh, do not accept half or more of the people who approach them. There's the best story I know about this, I can never remember the name of the firm, but there's a firm in the States and they have a very rigorous approach, and it's probably very quanty, um, but they have a very rigorous approach. And so the, the deal is you approach them and say, I'd like, I'd like you guys to manage my money, and they go, fine, come and have a chat with us, and we'll, we'll talk you through the process. And they give you like an investor day, and they say, come back next month, and you come back next month, and they give you an exam. And if you don't pass the exam, they don't take you on as a client. I don't know anybody who has that approach, but it's exactly right. You need to, uh, people need to understand how their managers tick and what the process is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if there's any iota of disagreement between one expectation and the other expectation, it's ultimately going to end badly. So, you know, uh, for any number of reasons, in any number of contexts, small is beautiful and big is, big is bollocks. <laughs> That's on your perspective. Yeah, quite right. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're thinking of putting on the website. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Glenn, I want to say a big thank you for you coming back on the show. And if you do decide to get back into the market, if there's something that trips in a big way, would would you just give us a shout so we can get you back on to talk about it? Yeah, if uh, if if something massive happens, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. I always enjoy talking to you guys. It'd be great. It's, uh, I always learn a lot as well from talking to you guys. Um, well, that's so, very kind. so you know, yeah, I do. <laughs> so, it's always worth doing, definitely. Well, that'd be fantastic. So you know, if if um and if you decide to write a book, you know, we'd love to talk about that as well. So whatever you decide to do, let us know. Keep us abreast of what's going on, uh, in Glenn Goodman world. And just good luck with the trading. Well, thanks very much. It's, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. I can't. God, it's been. It's been an <laughs> it's hour. Been two it's, hours. It's been two hours. It goes fast, it's doesn't been, it? It's like it the really Joe Rogan does. show. Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. But That's it how the, it's, it's great that we can do that. Yeah, it's superb. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, and thanks, Tim. Uh, it's been quite an open and frank one, this, hasn't it? It's been really good. Yeah, we've covered a, a lot of ground as always, which has been a great pleasure. So great to have you on again, Glenn. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, as I said. 
all the very best. Stay safe and we'll see, speak to you soon. Let's be careful out there. Be careful out there. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Cheers then. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.